Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So in an interview last year, uh, Daniel Smith, who of course is now Alberta's premier, uh, remarked in an interview uh, a, a little anecdote from her previous stint in politics. But apparently once a, a staffer had remarked to her, quote, Danielle, you have no crazy radar. In other words, it was kind of a comment on her ability to, to weed people out who might have been a little unhinged or a little conspiratorial. What does it tell us about her own interest in conspiratorial views? Uh, fascinating uh, deep dive into Daniel Smith's uh, Locals Only or Locals.com, Locals.com platform which is a, a basically a subscription, a members-only uh, social platform uh, that Daniel Smith joined, I think, about a year ago. And much of the content, whether it be on the U.S. election, vaccinations, the war in Ukraine, is, I think, fairly described as conspiratorial. You know, with all the focus on Ukraine in the news, and, and certainly here in Alberta, uh, that aspect has drawn a lot of attention. Uh, for example, this from uh, an online uh, Ask Me Anything uh, form she did two months after the invasion. Is this one of the, is this the older one where Ukraine said that they would be neutral and also denuclearize? Because that should have been the answer right from the beginning. If I'm missing something and there's some new plan, let me know. Right. And I mean, of course, there are no nuclear weapons in, uh, in Ukraine and haven't been in more than 20 years. Uh, so how relevant is all of this, you know, in terms of how the premier thinks, how she approaches issues, the ideas she's willing to entertain? Sure, I think it's relevant. Uh, anyway, uh, this was all, all brought to the forefront, as mentioned, this deep dive was the work of uh, investigative uh, journalist, independent journalist Justin Ling. It's got a fascinating Substack uh, newsletter that focuses on conspiracy theories and whatnot, bugeyedandshameless.com. And find it for yourself. And Justin joins us on the line here this, uh, this afternoon. Justin, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Dave. Uh, look, man, this has certainly uh, opened up a can of worms here in Alberta. Uh, but I guess, you know, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of provocative stuff here. Should we be surprised by the reaction? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, listen, this this is the, the now the premier of Alberta, um, you know, on the record saying all manner of kooky things from, you know, mRNA vaccines uh, are causing a whole bunch of injuries and deaths that are being covered up. Um, she's intoned that uh, vaccinated people, at least with those mRNA mRNA vaccines are more likely to die of COVID uh, than everyone else. Uh, patently, categorically, demonstrably untrue. Um, you know, she has parroted Russian propaganda. Um, she has parroted the line that the U.S. government has been operating secret bioweapons labs in Ukraine. Um, she has uh, endorsed repeatedly, consistently, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., one of the world's most kind of uh, notorious and vocal anti-vaccine advocates. She has boosted organizations like Vaccine Choice Canada and Taking Back Our Freedoms, um, two groups 
that have been vocally anti-vax. She has uh, endorsed, or at the very least, complimented a group called Action for Canada, which once sued the federal government, alleging that uh, the Pfizer and the federal government want to microchip the population. She has endorsed the World Economic Forum conspiracy theory, uh, adored by right-wing kooks everywhere. I can keep going on, mm-hmm. but the reality is this is uh, this is pretty serious stuff. This isn't just dabbling in a couple things here and there for her own political benefit, like perhaps Pierre Polyev has done. She's actively um, engaging with these conspiracy theories, endorsing them, publicizing them, um, remixing them, adding on to them. I, I mean, it's really disquieting that she's fallen for all of this. Right. It, it is odd. I mean, you know, even, you know, some of the, the, the silly stuff around the 2020 U.S. election, um, sure. you know, she's bought into the notion, or at least seemed to in some of these posts, that, that uh, you know, this, this was stolen from Donald Trump, right? So, listen, it, it, it's one thing for a politician to believe in conspiracy theories, right? That's not good. That's obviously bad. But it, it says something that they're this gullible, right? You know, it, she has so clearly rejected every form of mainstream journalism or media, even conservative outlets. Mm-hmm. that she's so willing to believe anything that comes along, frankly. And so the perfect example, like you mentioned, is this documentary she watched called 2,000 Mules. It's by a guy named Dinesh D'Souza, a kind of prominent right-wing um, faux intellectual, in my opinion. Uh, this documentary claims that there was an orchestrated effort across the U.S. by the Democratic Party to hire mules, people to go around harvesting ballots from unsuspecting voters and dropping them off into drop boxes in the dead of night. This documentary claims to be the categorical proof that the U.S. election was rigged. Well, it just so happens that every single shred of supposed evidence in that documentary has been roundly rejected by every single court across the U.S., including from Trump-appointed judges. The documentary has been torn apart by election specialists. Um, it has been debunked, denounced, and discredited by just about everybody who knows what they're talking about. Yet for Daniel Smith, it's apparently the gold standard. And, and you know, this isn't just some you know commentator, as she was for a while. She's now the premier of Alberta. She has to deal with the U.S. government. How can we trust her to engage with the Biden administration on bilateral things like energy when she believes the government is illegitimate? This is an actual diplomatic problem. This is more than just one, uh, you know, radio host as she was for a while, you know, uh, kooky beliefs. She's the premier. It is unbelievable that that her party has put her into this position as leader, given that she's, she's espoused these ridiculous beliefs. Well, and here's the thing. I mean, you know, people have faulted then the other leadership candidates for not doing their own homework uh, on on who they were up against. So talk a bit about this platform, because, yes, this was was sitting there in in plain view. But I mean, it kind of wasn't. Tell us about Locals.com. So uh, I, I don't fault anybody for not recognizing what Locals.com is because I barely knew what it was uh, because it, it has been a failure of a platform. Uh, it was a platform started um, by a, a number of sort of right-wing um, commentators after Patreon, the sort of subscription platform, decided to boot off one YouTuber who couldn't stop using racial slurs. Right? That, that literally the, the reason they debuted him. It's the reason a whole bunch of others had, had quit in sort of protest including uh, you know Jordan B. Peterson and a few others. Uh, so they went and started their own platform called Locals.com, and the basic idea is that it's identical to Patreon, but you can say and do anything you want. 
So Danielle Smith, uh, evidently identified with that cause, and joined. And she has racked up some 20,000 paying members. I chipped in two bucks for a month's <laughs> membership so I could take a look at what was being said. And it, it's right there. I mean, this is not something you could find unless you pay, unless you actually go to her website. It's not very easy to search. Uh, but nevertheless, it's all right there. There's hours and hours and hours of Ask Me Anything, these these video vlogs she would do where people would send in uh, commentary and questions, and she would respond to them. And frequently, those questions uh, were unbelievably kooky, you know, uh, asking whether or not uh, the World Economic Forum is working with Trudeau and the Chinese government to create a social credit system that will keep us all under surveillance and lock us up or whatever if we don't you know, toe the party line. Uh, people asking uh, about uh, Ukraine from an awfully Russian, uh, pro-Russian point of view. Uh, people asking about these vaccine deaths. Uh, and, you know, it, it, to her credit, at least a little bit, sometimes she reads these questions and says, oh, I don't know anything about that. I'm going to move on. But all too frequently, she reads these and basically endorses them, says yes. You should be worried that the Trudeau government is going to create a social credit system that will uh, cancel your bank account if you don't vote for him or if you say mean things about him on Twitter, which, of course, is just paranoid and ridiculous. So this 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 has been going on for a while. This has been a year and a half of this, and I guess no one thought to check this thing. No one found it fine. Uh, but now that it's there, we should deal with this. I mean, you know, these are her you know, unvarnished, earnest beliefs, and she's the premier now. You know, this is... This should be disqualifying to be totally blunt with you. Well, but, you know, the thing was, I, I, it clearly wasn't to a lot of her fans because there was an audience here. And I'm guessing there's probably a significant overlap from those who were signed up and following this and those who went out and voted for her in the leadership race. It's actually funny. She at one point, I, I don't think she's going to make the same point that I'm about to make here, but I'm going to borrow her phrase. She writes that there's a real enthusiasm, uh, enthusiasm gap or a lack of enthusiasm in Canadian politics right now. And she's quite right. No mm -hmm. one's really happy, <laughs> understandably so. The only people who are energized, who are excited, who are agitated, are largely anti-vaccine activists. Right. I mean, those are the only people who actually feel fired up about politics right now. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel totally distraught at the quality and the and the the, the capability of most of our political leadership across this country uh, on just about every level of government. There's very few people I'm feeling positive and warm about at the moment. Uh, and I think a lot of people are the same way. It's me. It means that they're not signing up for the party to, to vote in leadership races. It means they're not coming out to vote. It means they're not donating. They're not getting active. They're not coming to rallies. The only people that are doing that are largely anti-vaccine advocates and activists who have gotten so disgruntled over the last couple of years um, that they are coming out en masse to support people like Danielle Smith and Pierre Polyev. And, and now we're going to reap the consequences of that kind of enthusiasm, the enthusiasm gap. Right, because there's the cynical view that this was meant to target a certain political audience, get them enthusiastic about her. But I, I think when, when you take it all in totality, like there's a real reflection, I think, of her own views here. Is that, is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, at a certain point, you have to believe this, right? I, again, look at Pierre Polyev. Like, I don't think Pierre Polyev is an anti-vaxxer. Uh, I actually think Pierre Polyev 100% knows that the vaccines are safe and reliable and efficient and effective. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he is just maybe somewhat cynically um, looking at those anti-vaccine activists and saying there's a lot of enthusiasm, there's a lot of money, uh, there's a lot of energy there. I'm going to tap into that and I'm going to ride it to political success. And there's a lot 
has been written and said and will be written and said about whether or not that's a dangerous play. But nevertheless, I think Pierre Polyev thinks he's he's using them to channel the, that energy into something good. Danielle Smith has clearly been taken hold by this uh, philosophy. I mean, she uh, went to the U.S. to get a Johnson & Johnson vaccine because she doesn't trust the mRNA vaccines. Um, she has basically said that children should not be vaccinated despite the overwhelming body of evidence suggesting that it is totally safe. Uh, she has repeatedly uh, endorsed uh, therapeutics that we know from a overwhelming body of science are not effective, right? I mean, she has fully gone in on these conspiracy theories. And, you know, listen, Danielle Smith is somebody who I personally quite liked in politics. You know, I like a libertarian. I want there to be more libertarians in our political system. I want there to be unconventional thinkers in our system. Unfortunately, she has fallen prey to the same sort of bug-eyed nonsense that a lot of other people on the right have done in recent years. And I think she has uh, completely lost the plot. I mean, she is on this locals only fade and she's in her newsletter as well. We haven't even got into her newsletter yet, but that's a whole other can of worms. You know, she is speaking to her followers, sharing with them literal Russian propaganda, you know, complete conspiracy theories. She's sharing with them articles from a website that has openly advocated the summary execution of Black Lives Matter activists, right? Like she is not uh, playing these people. She's one of them. Yeah, on the vaccine issue, I mean you know, there's 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 some overlap here. I mean, both Danielle is a candidate in the leadership race and Pierre is a candidate in the leadership race. And ever since then, you know, said we, we shouldn't have vaccine mandates. We don't need vaccine mandates. I, you know, as long as I'm in charge, there's not going to be vaccine mandates. And that's fine. And that's a reasonable position yeah, to take. Absolutely. I think that's the line that Pierre's gone up to. I haven't really heard anything from Pierre that is overtly anti-vaccine. But as you noted, it's different here. It's not just about being against vaccine mandates. It's pretty clear from her own words that that hostility extends towards the vaccines themselves. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, if you want to come out and be against vaccine mandates, I think there's a good debate to be had about whether or not that's good policy, but it doesn't disqualify you from public office. It doesn't make you an anti-vaccine Yahoo by any stretch of the imagination. But Daniel Smith often sort of uh, parlays any criticism of her into saying, oh, well, you're just supportive of the lockdowns or you're supportive of the curfews or you're supportive of the vaccine mandates. Right. I mean, and, and that is sort of the political dance she's done, suggesting that anyone cr who criticizes her is an enemy of freedom. But of course, that's nonsense. I mean, again, you know, from my point of view, I'm anti-lockdown and I've you know, been increasingly anti a lot of these emergency measures we've seen across the country in recent years. But I am looking at what Daniel Smith is saying here, and it's not that. What is she is saying is anti-scientific. It's cribbed from think tanks, activist groups. Uh, conspiracy organizations, websites that peddle in outright nonsense. Again, she was recommending a group that thinks that the COVID-19 vaccine was being used to microchip the population with 5G-enabled technology so that we could be tracked, right? You know, these are the groups she's listening to. This is not a reasonable person putting forward reasonable policy. This is somebody who is no longer media literate, right? Like, and I can't, over, I can't you know, overstate that enough. She doesn't know what she's talking about anymore. She is living in a fantasy world. She's become unglued from reality. This is a problem. Again, I mean, she's the premier of Alberta. I mean, she's not the, the foreign affairs minister for Canada. Arguably, maybe her views on, on Russia, Ukraine are a little bit less relevant. I think they're still relevant. But I mean, you know, provinces are responsible for vaccination. Alberta's set to roll out sure. flu shots yeah. this week, boosters next week. So that becomes much more relevant then, doesn't it? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, how can we trust her to set health policy now? I mean, she has exclusively, it seems, listened to people who are fringe, not even fringe, they're not even in the medical community, right? You know, they are encouraging people to unplug entirely from the medical community. I mean, the, you know, the people she's listening to are, you know, like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., are basically making the case that the entire medical community has been corrupted by Big Pharma and is presiding over the, the basically the, the mass killing of people via these vaccines and that they can no longer be trusted. If that's what Danielle Smith believes, as it seems that she does, how can we trust her to set health policy? That is a really fundamental, troubling question. And I, again, I, I, having read a lot of what she's written over the last year and a half, I'm, I, I can't stress enough, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I mean, she's writing often that Pfizer and Canadian government have been covering up mass vaccine injuries. Let me give you a really kind of specific example. She repeatedly cites data from a system called VAERS. It is the, the Vaccine Adverse, Re- Adverse Event Reporting System run out of the U.S. by the CDC, right? It compiles every single time anybody has had any negative consequence, any negative health outcome after getting a vaccine. It does not prove causation. It is purely correlation, right? And the idea is you collect all this data and you investigate and you see if the vaccine is causing these problems. And we have found thus far, the vaccines have not caused any of these problems apart from some that have been well publicized. Well, Daniel Smith doesn't understand that. Daniel Smith repeatedly looks at this data and says vaccines are causing all of these injuries and potentially even deaths in the thousands. Right. She doesn't understand it. And she's listening to total quacks who are telling her that this data proves that the, the vaccines are, are really harming people and the government is covering it up. Well, yeah, I mean, the, these are her own words, uh, as mentioned. Uh, again, folks who read more, bug and shameless.com is the newsletter. Justin, thanks so much. For making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thanks for having me. All right. That's uh, independent journalist Justin Ling. Uh, his newsletter is mentioned, bug and shameless.com. So, yeah, look, I mean, politicians should be accountable for their views. That's that's the case of this premier. That's the case of those who would be premier. I, I think it's fair to note all of this. And and yeah, there's some there's some interesting stuff here. To put it mildly. Well, Canadians were calling it Sea Day, as one New York Times reporter famously declared in 2018. Uh, nobody was actually. <laughs> I'm pretty sure nobody, literally nobody, was calling it Sea Day. Before years ago today, October 17th, 2018, cannabis became legal in Canada. It was the first official day of legalization, something the Liberals had promised to do, of course, in the 2015 election. And look, I mean, there was a kind of radical proposal at the time. Like no major political party had embraced legalization prior to that. But it really showed, I think, how much the debate had changed. I mean, there, you know, some opposition from the conservatives, but... Not really fierce opposition. And, and we're to the point now where I don't think the conservatives have any inclination to, to want to change this. So we've come to, to accept legalization as just kind of normal, which is quite a change from where it was you know, a few decades ago. But does that mean that legalization has been a success? Just because Canadians have come to the conclusion that it makes sense to not criminalize cannabis doesn't necessarily mean that that legalization has gone well. I mean, a black market still exists. You know, you still got a a legal industry that's trying to find its footing. You know, maybe here in Alberta, for example, uh, you know, there's still going to be some some reckoning in the marketplace. There's probably ultimately too many retailers. 
And so it's kind of a fierce battle to see who survives. Uh, taxation still remains an issue. Maybe that gets back to why some are still drawn to the black market. So, uh, you know, four years later, what needs to change? Where have been the successes and, and what still needs to improve? Well, joining us for some thoughts uh, on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Michael Armstrong, Associate Professor of Operations and Research at Brock University and focuses on Canada's cannabis industry. Professor Armstrong, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. So when you're asked, you know, whether legalization has been a success, hmm. how do you come at that question? Well, it depends on what you define success, you know, what aspect uh, some of the financial people uh, figure it was not a success because they didn't make uh, a whole ton of money on their stock investments. But that wasn't really the uh, main purpose, uh, either from the point of view of uh, cannabis consumers or from the point of view of the government. So the government brought this in uh, basically from a perspective of harm reduction, uh, public safety, so that people who wanted to use cannabis, uh, not to say it's necessarily good for them, but if they wanted to use it, okay, let's give them the right to use it. Let's let them access a product that's been tested uh, so that we don't have to worry about contamination, so that the potency uh, on the label is accurate, those kinds of things. And also at the same time, let's take away the business uh, from the criminals who are running it before. Let's deprive them of that revenue. So in a way, what they wanted to do was make the, the new industry attractive enough to bring the existing customers over, but not so attractive that would cause a whole bunch of new people to start uh, consuming cannabis. So mm -hmm. was it successful? I'd say yes, a limited success, but right. a success nonetheless. I, I, I prefer to use it, describe it as a work in progress. Uh, we've come a long way, but there's lots of room for improvement. Uh, the federal government announced last month that it's beginning a review of its laws to see how it could be improved. Uh, I'd encourage Alberta and other provinces to do something similar. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. I mean, just on the general principle of, okay, we, we wrongly criminalized something for far too long that shouldn't have been criminalized, we stopped doing that, then sure, on day one, I guess, arguably was a success. But in terms of some of these other issues you mentioned, we've still got some work to do. So uh, on the question of, uh, I guess, what we would still refer to as the black market or the illicit market, uh, that, that really hasn't gone away. Is, is government policy to blame for that? Uh, well, it hasn't gone away, but it's definitely declined. Uh, now, of course, the challenge here is it's very difficult to measure the illicit market because those folks don't fill out government surveys. Mm -hmm. um, the best estimate from Statistics Canada is that the illicit market's about half as big as it was before. Uh, so in the course of four years, that's a really radical change um, in uh, any industry. Um, we know that there's a lot less physical stores. I mean, if you think back four years just before legalization, in fact, even shortly after legalization, there were lots of uh, illegal stores popping up, kind of taking advantage of the gray area that police weren't really enforcing too much. Uh, those have disappeared in most areas, uh, but they migrated online, uh, where it's much more difficult for the police to uh, enforce. Uh, so these definitely still exist. On the other hand, they've lost a huge chunk of their market. Uh, a lot of consumers, we know from surveys, uh, are certainly saying they're buying a lot more cannabis from the legal licensed stores. They're buying a lot less from the illicit stores, but uh, it hasn't gone away. You know, we're, we're at least halfway there, but we've got a long way to go. So where do we need to, to start? Um, you know, there's obviously, look, there's federal taxes that come into play. Then we've got a whole array of provincial regulations across the country. 
what's step one here then? Um, well, the in Alberta, uh, you, as you mentioned in the introduction, you've got lots of stores. You, Alberta was great at getting the retail stores up quickly, uh, but easily the best province uh, across the country for that. Uh, and that was really important because something we learned very quickly is c- Canadian consumers want to buy their cannabis in a store. Um, and the provinces that got more stores up were the ones who got the f- fastest switch over to the legal market. So that was great. Now, of course, the problem is we're now kind of in a boom and bust cycle. So we went through that boom. Uh, and just like happens in other industries, uh, capitalism sometimes leads to excess. So we went from having not enough stores to too many stores. Right. And so now we're going to see some consolidation and closing, uh, particularly in Alberta, because I think you have you have more stores per capita than anywhere else. I think about 30% more than Saskatchewan, yeah. about 50% more than we have in Ontario. So unfortunately, yes, we're going to see some closures. We're going to see uh, some taken over by chains uh, to try and get some efficiency there. Right, and maybe there's an argument that that's how it should be. Instead of having government sort of dictating how many stores there should be or how they should be run or even running stores themselves, is it, is it preferable, preferable to let market forces sort all that out? Well, that to some extent is a, uh, you know, a political or ideological decision. So yeah. we had four provinces uh, in the east of Canada who decided to go with government-run stores. The other provinces, to varying degrees, uh, went with private sector. So I say, yeah, if you're going private sector, then you say, yeah, okay. Uh, you know, we're going to set the ground rules. You have to buy our licenses. You have to meet certain standards, but leave the business side up to the business community. And they will figure out, you know, what, how many stores they need. Uh, whereas if you have the, the, the government model and that becomes a government decision, um, there are some advantages to that. In the sense, you get some centralized decision-making. You can kind of be more efficient about your stores, not get too many. But, you know, if you leave something in the hands of government, sometimes they don't make good decisions because they don't have to respond to the market forces as much. So there's a trade-off there. Uh, Yeah, Alberta and a lot of other Western provinces have to do more boom and bust, but that is the business cycle. One issue that the government's really struggled with is, you know, allowing people to grow their own cannabis. And maybe some of the pressure came from the industry, too. They didn't want the competition from people doing it themselves. So we, we had all kinds of rules put into place that, that really limited, you know, what people could do on their own. Uh, does that still need to be sorted out? Uh, there are some issues, but it's that one, I think, is more related on the medical cannabis side. So... Uh, you're right. The federal government said, yeah, we're going to let people grow their own plants. They put a limit in of four plants, uh, although practically speaking, you know, we don't have policemen going around your backyard counting plants. Uh, but they said, okay, yeah, you can grow your own plants. Uh, two provinces, Manitoba and Quebec, put in their own rules and said, no, we don't want that. Um, I think it's, it makes a lot of sense to let people grow their own plants. Uh, yeah, the number one reason is, People already were growing their own plants. They are growing it when it was completely legal. There was no authorization for it. Why on earth would you expect them to stop growing plants when you make the product legal? So strictly from a practical point of view, uh, it would be unenforceable to ban the plants. You know, somebody wants to grow it for long consumption. Now, where you do get some problems is if, uh, you know, somebody carries that extreme and basically sets up their own little uh, cannabis uh, sales business, i.e. they become a dealer. So that's why we do have that limit is, you know, if the police find you and they figure out, hey, you've got 100 plants in your backyard, 
uh, guess what? You're not a, an average consumer anymore, and we can prosecute you. Um, there is an argument, actually, more in the United States. Some states are, uh, are banning the plant growing. And, yes, I, I suspect there's some pressure on the corporate side. They're trying to get the markets from the cells. So I think that's I think that's a bad policy move. I'm glad Canada allowed home growing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about taxation because, um, you know, maybe there's a social responsibility aspect. We tax alcohol. We tax tobacco. Mm-hmm. I think there was an expectation that there'd be something in place with regard to cannabis. Maybe governments, you know, looked at it as a revenue opportunity. So, Indeed. you know, these factors combined uh, to, to lead to, some would argue, were significant taxes. I know you've done some calculations, like in Ontario, for example. What about... Forty percent of the price on on cannabis is um, you know, going to government in some form. Yes, um, so there there's a trade off there. So you're right. Uh, government is tempted to tax cannabis just like it tax alcohol, tobacco. Um, part part of the reason there is just to generate revenue to pay for other things like health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it though is actually a, a health policy decision. The idea, well, if you increase the, the price of cigarettes, you increase the price of alcohol people will tend to drink a little less, smoke a little less, and that's actually good for their health. So that's actually a positive reason to have taxes on those products. The, in principle, the same thing applies to cannabis, but we have an extra complication, which is the black market. Uh, they're already there. They already control uh, most of the uh, sales. So if you want to take that away from them, you can't overly tax the legal market because that wouldn't be competitive on price. Right. So it's a balancing act. Uh, yes, yeah, some some provinces like Ontario, I believe Newfoundland, some of the maritime provinces have very high tax uh, rates. You in Alberta is kind of a, an odd case um, because you're famous for not having sales taxes. Right. Um, <laughs> however, the Alberta government actually has an extra tax on cannabis. So every province in the country has a basic excise tax, like if it's dry cannabis. There's a dollar of tax, 25 cents goes to the feds, 75 cents goes to the provincial treasury. Alberta was one of the few provinces to say, well, we want more. Uh, so they put an extra 16 point, uh, I think it's 16.8% tax. It's paid by the producer when the product's delivered. So the consumers don't see it, but it ends up being built in the price. So that's why uh, the Alberta government, uh, instead of getting about $90 million in excise tax last year, uh, I think it was closer to 164 million. They almost double it thanks to the extra tax. And here's a Is question: that appropriate? Well, yeah. you know that's a trade-off. Right. Exactly. Uh, a subjective one. Let me see this question, and, and it was interesting. I know your piece uh, at theconversation.com from yesterday, it, uh, it points out that uh, monthly recreational cannabis sales at $395 million in July, up from around $50 million in the early days of legalization. But as we've mm-hmm. talked about, you know, the black market has subsided somewhat. All told, Michael, are, are Canadians using more cannabis than four years ago? Well, that's another good question I know uh, several researchers are working on. Um, this, what the surveys tell us is that um, cannabis use has increased over time, but it's difficult to know whether the increase since legalization is because of legalization or is it just uh, the existing trend continuing on. So mm-hmm. the uh, percentage of adult Canadians using cannabis has actually been increasing in Canada since about 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the legalization, it, it also increased, but how much of that was 
the past trend, so just, you know, people were using more cannabis. How much was, hey, it's legal now, I'm going to tr- start using cannabis. Right. And how much was, well, I've actually always used cannabis, but I've never been willing to admit it on a government survey. Uh, now I can admit it because it's legal. That's so true. some of that's yeah. just reporting. Now, the good news is, as far as we can tell, um, there has not been an increase amongst youth. Uh, so the teenagers who, for better or worse, well, mostly worse, I suppose, uh, were already one of the heaviest users of cannabis, that percentage does not seem to have changed very much after legalization. And I think that's, that's actually quite logical because, you know, we've opened all these stores, but teenagers can't go in the stores. Right. Uh, the black market was already present enough. If teens really wanted to get it, they could get it there. Presumably, I guess they still are. So adding all these legal stores made it a lot easier for adults, uh, but didn't make it any easier for teens. So that's the good news. It doesn't seem to have increased the use. And then going back to your sales number, uh, to put that in perspective, uh, legal recreational cannabis sales now are about half the size of the beer industries and about three-quarters the size of the uh, distillery, the spirits, gin, vodka, that kind of thing. So it's not a huge industry, but it's a nice addition to our economy. Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of a side question to to this, is that you know, are, are they in competition? Have people stopped Ooh, drinking and, and started smoking, right? Um, that's something researchers are trying to figure out. There's, uh, have been some studies done in the United States, uh, but they're kind of contradictory. Uh, some, some studies have found a small, you know, people who use more cannabis use less alcohol. Some have found they actually use more together. Uh, of course, it's a challenge there because everything, all the cannabis use is technically illegal, uh, at least federally. Um, so that would be something that I don't think we've seen a huge increase, but it could be a, a small change because of that. Uh, but I don't really know. All right. Well, we'll see where we're at, I guess, four years from now. But uh, an interesting yeah. reflection on uh, four years of cannabis legalization. Professor Armstrong, appreciate your insight. Thanks for making some time for us here today. My pleasure. All the best. Cheers. Uh, that's uh, Michael Armstrong at Brock University. A focus on the cannabis, uh, Canada cannabis industry four years after C-Day. Uh, that's what New York Times reporter called it. Well, look, I don't need to tell you that, um, you know, you're paying more for food these days, whether it be the grocery store, restaurant, wherever. Uh, food inflation is a big part of the overall inflation problem. In fact, even as the overall inflation rate has started to level off a bit, food inflation is still running higher and still running pretty high. And that's a big problem because obviously we need to buy food. It's kind of an essential. Whereas with the cost of other goods or services, sure, maybe we can uh, cut back or do without not really an option when it comes to, uh, you know, feeding ourselves, feeding our families. So a lot of concern and frustration, I think, on the part of Canadians as to why that is the case. And the answer as to why that is the case is, is not a simple one. I think some have tried to, to boil it down to simplistic kind of uh, explanations. You know, like it's the government's fault, they're spending too much, or it's the corporation's fault, they're too greedy, and, and these kinds of things. Look, there's a lot going on here. In terms of, you know, the entire supply chain, cost to producers, cost of transportation, cost to retailers, energy costs, right? I mean, the interest rates, it's just a whole bunch of factors that are coming into play here. But I think people are also looking at the retailers and saying, look, you're, the, you're the, our final point of contact here. You're the ones who are setting the prices that consumers pay. Obviously, you've got to factor in all of those costs. But what does your bottom line look like? 
And if you're posting some big profits, maybe we should be asking some harder questions of your role in all of this. So maybe in response to that, or maybe it's just meant as a a PR blitz, whatever the case, uh, the announcement today from Loblaws uh, that they are freezing prices through January on their no-name brand products. So that's an important caveat here. They're not freezing prices on everything or or freezing prices across the board. And obviously, companies who supply them, they could change their prices. So some of that's uh, out of their hands. Uh, The no-name brand is their in-house product line. And Loblaws says they are freezing those prices through January. There will be no price increases for the rest of this calendar year on those products. So what does that mean? And how significant is that? We see other retailers follow suit. Joining us uh, for some analysis of the announcement today, we're pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Stuart Smith, Associate uh, Professor at the University of Saskatchewan, Industry-Funded Research Chair in Agri-Food Innovation. Professor Smith, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it. Uh, so certainly, uh, you know, this is uh, the kind of announcement that grabs some headlines right now with everybody, you know, worried about these issues. But in your view, how how significant is this announcement, first of all? I think it can can have a fairly important impact, particularly um, in, in the areas of the, the brand name or in-house vegetables, frozen vegetables. Uh, a lot of our vegetables are, are going to be increasingly imported from the U.S. and the Canadian dollars dropping, which, which makes all of those imported food products more expensive. So you know, the fact that they're going to defreeze uh, prices on these, type, you know, these types of products over the coming months, I I think can can provide some savings for for households and particularly in in the frozen vegetable sector. Right. Obviously, this is partly a PR strategy. I mean, part of the announcement uh, from the company was to try to explain what's going on with food prices, how a lot of this is uh, out of their control. But do you get the sense that they're cognizant of the public mood, that that there is definitely a, a PR side to all of this? Yeah, I, I I think it's a little bit of both, Rob. So so you're right. You know, they're appealing to to public sentiment to say, hey, we we recognize that that inflation in in the food sector has been ten to twelve percent over over the past number of months, and so so we're going to do you know a little bit of what we can to to help ensure that they've got some consumer loyalty, and and definitely part of this is is far beyond their control, right? With interest rates and and fuel prices remaining high, no grocery store can can make any changes in, in, in either one of those factors. So, yeah, a little bit of both. Right. I mean, there's there is that downside, I guess. I mean, you know, when you make an announcement like this, you can have people saying, well, why didn't you do this a long time ago? Maybe there's something implicit in this announcement that, OK, well, maybe you guys kind of are more in the driver's seat when it comes to prices than you've you've led us to believe. Is there some potential risk here in, you know, grocers going down this path? The, the risk probably comes on the back end would be would be my view rob is so so if they freeze the price till the end of january and let and and let's say something happens over the next course of the next three months or so right and, and so then those food prices maybe jump by 15 or 20 percent then that's going to create even more outrage with consumers you know because they were saying well you you managed to to keep costs down for the past few months and but all you did was then just make a massive price increase once that period was over so 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 it there's some risk to doing this for sure Right. And I guess there, there is that kind of loophole in all of this, that it's if you say you're freezing prices on uh, certain products, I guess that that gives some leeway maybe to, to make that up by increasing costs and in other products. That might be the more cynical view of this. That's that's always an option, right, is that 
retail, you know, retail stores run anywhere from sort of up to 60,000 different items. So, so freezing the price on 1500 is it, is a pretty small percentage of, of a, a grocery store's overall shelf space. So, mm-hmm. um, it, and it depends sort of what the return is per, per square foot of, of shelf space for those products, right? So, so you're right. They, they may be nudging up the price on, on some of the high-volume um, products that, that are more valuable. So, but, again, there, there's really no transparency to, to any of that. You know, getting back, and you alluded to it, I mean, some of the, the cost pressures that the grocery retailers de- are dealing with, and there's impacts right through the food chain. I mean, costs to producers, transportation costs, I mean, interest rates, energy, uh, commodity prices, you know, there, there's a whole list of factors that, that are driving uh, all kinds of costs, but food costs in particular, uh, that it is tough for Canadians to sort through all of this. Like, what's going on here? Are we being gouged? Are there legitimate explanations? It's, it's a complicated puzzle, isn't it? Oh, it certainly is, and 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 you feel for the retailers because you know we've seen that the gas gas stations go through a similar thing, right? Where yeah. where they've had you know probably over the last ten or fifteen years a, a couple of inquiries about price fixing and 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 price gouging, and and the food industry's not completely innocent in this, right? No, there's, that's true. There's been a couple of cases down east where where you know, they went to court and, and particularly on the bread side of things, right? They, they found that there was price fixing. So, you know, having a couple of those cases being exposed, it, it, it puts in, you know, in our minds as consumers that it, we're, we're a little bit skeptical of some things based on past actions within the retail space. You know, the fact that this announcement continues through January is is sort of an indication that, yeah, we, we shouldn't expect a quick fix to all of this. I mean, you know, turning around inflation overall, it's like turning around a, a massive ship, right? It takes a long time to get turned in, in the right direction. So even if there is some light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to overall inflation or even potentially food inflation, we're, we're still probably months away from that, aren't we? I, I think you're right, Rob. And, and and one of the concerns is, you know, as that ship sort of turns, it might get stuck in the canal like, like that one <laughs> yeah, did exactly. in the Suez Canal for yeah. for a number of weeks. So so we might sort of get partway into this and then things stall and we head into a recession for, you know, three or four quarters. And we're really not going to see much nudging in, in, in the way of, of bringing food prices back to sort of, you know, that, that number we have in mind from, from sort of, you know, last year or, or even pre-COVID. And I think that's the, the worrying thing for me is that, you know, the entire retail um, food industry is, is going to say, well, consumers have now become used to, to paying these prices. So even if we do back off, say, 10 or 20 percent savings in, in transportation costs, we're going to keep most of that as profit. We, we may knock things back you know, four or five percent, but but we're going to consume most of that savings in house. Would well, be interesting to see what happens here. I would imagine, um, you know, there there are probably going to be some some follow up announcements here. Are you expecting some of Loblaws competitors to to maybe respond here with their own announcements? Yeah, you know, there's been some of this starting in Europe in the summer, so mm-hmm. I, I would think that this has been a topic of discussion for for all of the Canadian retail. Uh, companies large and small. So I think Loblaws just was sort of first out of the gate on this. And I wouldn't be surprised over the next couple of weeks uh, that we see, um, you know, 
at least responses from from the other major retailers and whether or not they follow suit but but I think they will certainly have to to come to the the media and, and make press announcements anyway. We'll leave it there for now. Appreciate the perspective and the inside Professor Smith. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. My pleasure. Uh, Stuart Smith of the University of Saskatchewan, Associate Professor, Industry-Funded Research Chair in Agri-Food Innovation. His thoughts on this announcement today. Your thoughts. Are you expecting your grocer, if it's not a Loblaws store, to follow suit here? Does this make you more drawn to, to Loblaws, or are you maybe a little cynical about uh, what it all means? If prices are going up on other things, then maybe it's a wash. If, as Professor Smith says, you know, come January, they jack up these prices, maybe we'll all end up uh, paying it back anyway. But look, it's probably smart business to show consumers who are very price sensitive right now that we're hearing you. We're taking that seriously. And here's what we're going to do. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.